to me. Amen. Hi. I tell you what, I wanted to strangle your pastor. He calls me at night and said, I got an emergency. Emergency to me means a car wreck, you know, something like that. So my anxiety levels go through the roof. Hey, can you preach for me? Sure, dude, not an emergency. Well, the other day I was uh, rolling down the highway, got stopped by a highway patrolman. And as he was preparing to write out his ticket, I, uh, you know, hoping to appeal to his sympathy, I uh, said, Officer, uh, I hope you'll show me some mercy. I'm a poor preacher. And he said, yeah, I know. I heard you last Sunday. I, I, I hope that's not the case today. I really, really do. I've been going through the book of Acts at First Baptist Church in Plains. And so we're gonna, I'm just going to continue. You're getting what First Baptist Church Plains got this morning. If you would, please get your copy of God's Word and turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. As you're turning, shoot sports. A major supplier of football helmets for the National Football League. Uh, they issue the following warning on all of their helmets, and it's also on their website as well. It says, warning, no helmet system can prevent concussions or eliminate the risk of serious head or neck injuries while playing football. And the warning continues with some information about symptoms of, of concussions and concludes by repeating the original warning, to avoid these risks, do not engage in the sport of football. Well, at least they're honest, right? But, but let me tell you something. I loved to play football. There's just nothing like hitting someone right in the middle of the chest and feeling the air go out of them as you pile drive them into the turf. There is absolutely nothing like it on the planet. Is there, gentlemen? Yeah, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Listen, I love football. It brought me a lot of joy despite the risks. The risk involved. And in a similar way, the Bible, and in particular in the book of Acts, it's honest about the risk involved in following Jesus. Last week we discussed in, in, in Plains, we discussed the first Christian martyr. We discussed Stephen and how he was stoned to death for doing everything right. Kind of puts a hole in the prosperity gospel thing, right? Stephen did everything right and yet lost his life for the cause of Christ. Well, today what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the fallout of Stephen's death uh, and, and at, a, at another one of these early church leaders. His name was Philip, and we're just going to see the great joy that Jesus brings to life. I'm going to pray, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for an opportunity to just hear from you this morning. Father, I just ask that everything I say and do will bring glory and honor to you. Father, use me in spite of my sinfulness. We want to hear from you and only you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Saul was one of the witnesses, that is the man who eventually becomes Paul the apostle. Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. Now, Stephen's martyrdom, notice, it, it caused this outbreak of mass persecution against the Christians there in Jerusalem. Now, by this time, remember, the population of, of, of Jerusalem is probably somewhere around 40,000. Up to a third of the population of Jerusalem is now Christian. You add all those numbers up that you find in the book of Acts, 
And no wonder the power base, the, the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, were a little aggravated. They were losing power. And so they sent this guy Saul out to fix their problem. And all the believers, and this is very important detail, all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. So Luke makes the point, he's the writer of the book of Acts, Luke makes the point that the first time the gospel leaves the city of Jerusalem, it's not the apostles that are carrying the message. Now why, why that detail? Why is that important? Well, Luke doesn't tell us what the apostles did in Jerusalem. So the only, the only reason he would include that detail is to put the focus on those who had actually left, who were carrying the message. And folks, let me tell you something. The, the people who, who brought the message of the gospel outside of Jerusalem were just everyday Sam and Sarah's just like you and me. This, I believe, is the Holy Spirit's sign in showing us that this is how the Great Commission is supposed to move. The church grows not out of the preaching of a few apostles. It doesn't grow out of, uh, out of pastor types like me and Kyle. The, 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 the good news of the gospel spread by you guys. It's not a them, it's an us. Have you heard the analogy? If you've been in church very long, you've probably heard this analogy that, that uh, they, they compare churches to ships. Have you ever heard this? And that today's church is more like a cruise ship. Have you heard this? You know, there's, it's all about the ease and the comfort of, and the entertainment of the, of the passengers, the members, you know. You've got gyms and dining rooms and football fields and six flags over Jesus. You know, you have all of that. And so the, the church shouldn't be a cruise ship. It should be a battleship. But you know what? I really don't know that battleship is a great analogy because what does a battleship do? If you've ever watched the old stuff from World War II, those battleships sit way off the coast, right? And they lob shells over into enemy territory. Well, that's not a very accurate picture of what we're called to do and be, is it? I think a more accurate analogy, and of course every analogy breaks down at some point, but I think the better analogy is an aircraft carrier. It's designed to, send the ba to, to fight the battle out there. You come onto the ship to get reloaded. You come onto the ship to get some more fuel. You come on to do your training and all of that sort of thing. And then you take, you take yourself out there. It's not made for local skirmishes. It's made to project power into an entire region. Folks, that's a fairly decent analogy of what we're supposed to be at First Baptist Church of Denver City. We come here to refuel. We come here to equip, right? We come here to give you the training that you need. That's what we're here for. We're here to help you be ready for what you're going to be doing for the rest of the week. And then you get out there and get it done. You project the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ into the entire region. Whether it's in Denver City, whether it's Lubbock, whether it's Bangladesh. You've been called to impact the people of God in your relational sphere, your oikos. So listen. The Holy Spirit planned in advance for the gospel to go around the world through people like you and me. We have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. Do, do, do you understand the significance of that point? The whole book of Acts is laid out in chapter 1, verse 8. Look at it. It's on the screen. But you will receive power, and you there is plural. It's talking to all of us. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Folks, the next time 
you hear about Judea and Samaria after Acts 1.8 is 8.1. And it's not the apostles who are taking the gospel. Again, it's everyday people. The power that's mentioned in 1.8 has been given to you. And once you start operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, amazing things begin to happen. But here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that too many of us have no idea, you have no idea what I'm talking about when I'm talking about operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the reason that you have no idea what it means to operate in the, in the power of the, of the Holy Spirit, it's because you haven't taken this oikos thing seriously. That the message is supposed to go out through you. You know, in today's society, we hire people to do jobs, right? And so you hire your staff to do the job of the gospel. That is so unbiblical, it's, it's just not right. We take the gospel. And if you don't understand the power of the Holy Spirit, then that means you're not saying anything about Jesus to anybody else. Michael Jordan, those of you who remember Michael Jordan, he was once asked in an interview, he says, how do you do all those incredible things around the rim? Man, you do these acrobatic dunks and everything. How do you do that? And I love Michael's answer. Michael says, look, I just jump and then decide in the air. Right? I just jump and then decide in the air. Folks, that's a pretty accurate accounting of what it is to live in the Spirit. You think Michael Jordan practiced basketball? Over and over and over, doing all the drills, dribble drills, shooting drills, all the things he needed to get the basics, to get the things, the equipping that he needed, so when game time came, he was ready to go. But then when he jumped, it's all up to, it's all up to creativity. It's all up in our vernacular, to the Spirit. Folks, you need to be doing your prep. You need to be memorizing Scripture. You need to be, you need to be working on your, on your testimony. You need to be understanding how to witness, how to have conversations. That's what the church is for. We're here to equip. But then at some point, when you're out and about with your oikos, you've got to jump and rely on the Spirit to bring to mind the things that you need to say. He'll do it. I've experienced it. There have been times that I've had conversations with people and after the conversation is over, literally I'm thinking to myself, where did that come from? It's the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. Do not underestimate that. I showed the folks at Plains several weeks ago a, a, a promise that's just astounding to me in the Scriptures. I mean, it's, it's absolutely mind-blowing. Just a little quiz. You don't have to answer out loud. But do you remember who Jesus identified as the greatest prophet of all time? Before he came on the scene, who was the greatest of all time? Do you remember who it was? It was John the Baptist, right? And here's what he said. This is on the screen. Luke 7, 28. He says, I tell you, of all who have ever lived, this is Jesus speaking, he says, none is greater than John. John the Baptist. That's quite a compliment, right? I say it a lot when Jesus says, you're the best that has ever lived. But look how that verse is completed. Look at this. It's on the screen. Yet even the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Now think about that for a second. Someone in here, in this group, those of us who are here, one of you is the least. It's probably Charlie. One of you is the least. Okay? By definition. 
There is a single individual who you're, you're sitting there thinking, yep, I'm it, and God's saying, yep, you're it. Even you have more potential in the kingdom of God than John the Baptist. But here's the thing about potential. You know what potential means? It ain't done yet. It means we still have work to do. So put yourself out there. Jump! Absolutely do your homework. Absolutely do your preparation. Absolutely memorize scripture. Absolutely. But when the time comes, you rely on that Holy Spirit and you just take off. And I guarantee you, He will never let you down. Verse 2. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. Now just a little side note here, folks. Listen to me. We tend to make these people in the Bible plastic. They were hurt over the loss of Stephen. Imagine a guy like Kyle just is murdered, okay, in the middle of the street because he was being obedient to Jesus. How would that impact you? It was impacting these people that way. Don't, remember the emotion attached to these stories. Don't ever forget that. There were people just like you and me. Verse 3. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Now, I have a feeling here that Stephen's execution really got to Saul. Because here's, here's why I think that. It's because when we get convicted, our, normally our first reaction is when somebody confronts us with sin, when somebody confronts us with our spiritual condition, usually our first reaction is fury. We get mad and we lash out. That's exactly what Saul's doing here. He's lashing out. He's feeling the conviction of seeing what happened to that to that what the Bible describes, full of the Holy Spirit and power, Stephen, verse 4. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news. There it is. Those believers preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, this is, you remember they had the first seven deacons, servants in the church, chapter 6? Philip was one of them. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there, about the Messiah. Now let's talk for a second about Samaria. All right, the Samaritans and the Jews, they had a history to say the least. There was, there was hatred and mistrust. And folks, it hadn't just been lately. This thing had been going on for a thousand years. Literally a millennia of hate, mistrust, just nasty stuff. Here's a little history. Around 950 B.C., after the king... After the reign of King Solomon, there was a civil war in Israel. Here's a map, okay? And, and, and the, the nation of Israel was split in two. You had in the northern part, you had Israel, which is the northern kingdom. And then down at the bottom, you have Judah, which was, which was the southern kingdom. Now, the northern kingdom had a just 20, the Bible tells us, there were 20 of them, just awful kings. Didn't fear the Lord, led, led the northern kingdom into all kinds of sin, and God finally had enough. And in 722, God allowed the armies of Assyria to roll in and conquer, conquer the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, carried them off into exile. Now, as a part of their plan to keep these areas under control, what the Assyrians would do is that they would, they would intermarry with the people that they conquered. 
And then they would send the offsprings of those, of those uh, relationships, they would send them back in to repopulate the area. This is why when you hear about the ten tribes of Israel that have, that have disappeared, this is why. They no longer were a distinct people. They came to be known as the Samaritans. Well, if you know anything about the Jews, they had all of these rules, right? Some of them they made up. Some of them came from God, but most of them they made up, okay? By this time, they, weren't, they were so far away from the Word of God, and they had a serious issue with the unpure Samaritans, right? And so here, here's... They had their own little area just north of Jerusalem. And, and, and the, the Jews were just terrible. They would not even so much as sit on something that a Samaritan had touched, okay? Uh, when they would travel, go, go back one, please. When they would travel, they would not travel through Samaria. So what they would do is, down here at the bottom of Jerusalem, they would actually go all the way over to the Jordan River Valley and travel up that way to get to the Galilee. An entire day's travel out of the way. Why? Because we just we can't be anywhere around those Samaritans. Now, before you're feeling sorry for the Samaritans, they weren't very nice people either. They antagonized the Jews all the time. For example, when the Jews in Jerusalem needed to be in contact with the guys way up around the Galilee, what they would do is that they had a series of mountains you can see them running along the edge of the, of the Jordan River. What they would do is, is they had signal fires. Everybody seen the Lord of the Rings, right? And in the movie, they light the big fires on top of the mountains, and it keeps bouncing along. Well, they had that back in the day in Jerusalem. We, we can't, we can't, they didn't have cell phones, so that's the way they, they, they communicated. And the communication was, when they saw the fire, hurry to Jerusalem. Something's happened. Somebody's invaded. Somebody's attacking. <laughs> what the Samaritans would do is, is from time to time they would go to one of these mountains, they would take captive the people stationed there, and they would light the fires. And then the people up north would go, oh no, there's an emergency. they take off and head to Jerusalem, they get to Jerusalem, what's up? Uh, nothing. Right? Just being a pain. Uh, another thing that they would do during Passover, there are several accounts where, where they would launch pigs over the walls of the temple using catapults. And the sole reason was is to completely mess up Passover. I mean, it sounds like college pranks, right? Out of control, but it's, it's silliness. Now, on a more serious note, they would attack pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. They would rob them. Sometimes they would murder them. I mean, folks, ten centuries of this foolishness between these two people. Even today, look at this one, the next map. Even today, you, you remember... you. You've got the West Bank, right? They're disputed territories. The way that the UN split all of it up, and, and that's supposed to be the Palestinian place, and Israel's someplace else. The, the, the place where the people are, the, the land that they're fighting over, look what it's called, the West Bank, but look right below it. It's Samaria. They still don't like each other. So here is a Jew named Philip who walks into the capital of the area, the city of Samaria. And great joy breaks out. When they hear the message about Jesus, the place goes bananas. 
there's great joy. It's what it says. The gospel, you see, created unity that overcame centuries of hurt and mistrust. I was reading a sociologist the other day who said this about our current situation. They said, we know how to forcibly integrate society. We know how to pass laws to guarantee fairness. What we haven't been able to do is make races and cultures love and embrace each other. You know what? We know how to do it. It's the gospel. It's Jesus. What politics was unable to do and is still unable to do, the gospel did in an afternoon. How? Well, folks, the gospel identifies we all have one common problem, don't we? What is that problem? Sin. We can't get to God on our own. The gospel tells us that there is one common solution. What's his name? It's Jesus. And because of what Jesus has done, because of his forgiveness, because of his love, because of his mercy, he has created what, what, what we know as a new humanity. He creates what the Bible refers to as a, as a third people. In Bible world, there were only two types of people. There were Jews, the chosen, and there were the Gentiles, the not. That's just as plain as it can be. You had Jews, and then there was us. We're Gentiles. We're not Jews, right? But now, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is a new humanity, a, a, a third people, if you will, which is what the Christian becomes through faith in Jesus Christ. And see, what happens is, when Jesus has done in, what Jesus has done in us and through us outweighs anything that has previously divided us. The unity found in Christ outweighs any divisions or mistrust. I have been to several countries around the world, and it is amazing how different the cultures are, but when you're Christian, there's an automatic bond. It is amazing what happens. All of that cultural stuff is done away with. And folks, oh, I'm used to hitting wood, sorry. If the gospel can overcome the divisions between the Jews and the Samaritans, What's going on in our country today is small fry. And it's not going to happen through politics. It's not going to come through political act activism. It can only happen through Jesus. Only. Verse 6. Crowds, we're talking about Samaritan crowds here. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims. I love that. And many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. Now what this passage is doing is telling us that Philip's ministry, as he's, as he's headed into a place where no Jew would go, had two parts to it. It had word and deed. Okay? It had word and deed. They heard his message and they saw the things that he did. Folks, a true gospel witness has to contain both. It has to contain both. First, it has to involve words because the gospel in its essence is an announcement about who Jesus is and what he has done for every single one of us through his death, burial, and resurrection. And you cannot communicate that message without words. Sometimes we'll use the pithy little saying, you know, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Isn't that cute? It's dumb, but it's cute. It's just wrong. 
There is no way to share the gospel without words. The word gospel is not a religious word. It simply means good news. That's all it means. Back in the day, if a Greek general won a battle, he would send out a gospel. He was announcing the fact that he had been victorious in the battle. He was not inviting people to help him win the battle. He was not letting them... Uh, he, he, he was simply letting them know that the battle had already been won, that the enemy had been vanquished. Well, folks, the gospel of Jesus Christ is an announcement not about how people should live, not about an example that they should emulate. It's an announcement about what Jesus has done on our behalf. And, folks, that has to be delivered with words. Let me ask you a tough question. Are you talking to people in your oikos about Jesus? Not forcibly, but when given the opportunity, is Jesus coming out of your mouth? If you're a typical Christian, probably not. Most Christians are secret agent Christians. They've never shared their faith. Never. Someone I heard once said, that many of us are Arctic River Christians. We're frozen at the mouth. That's pretty good, right? We're frozen at the mouth. Imagine this. Suppose a guy, okay, girls, I want you to put yourself in this position, okay? This guy says to a young lady, Honey, I love you. I want to commit my life to you, so let's get married. But let's just keep it our little secret. I don't want your mom and dad to know. I don't want any of your friends to know. Let's just keep it to ourselves, and we'll just love each other that way. Now, what kind of commitment would that be, girls? Let me be really blunt. You love and are committed to Jesus as much as you're willing to talk about Him to others. Let me say that again. You love and are committed to Jesus as much as you are willing to talk about Him to others. Folks, you got to use words. Got it? But the other part of that is deeds. Or in our passage, is the, the, the uh, version I'm using, signs. Look at verse 6. They were eager to hear His message and see the miraculous signs He did. Well, what is a sign? Signs point to something, right? Planes, that way. The sign is, 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 it's not about the sign, it's what the sign is pointing to. Deeds or signs are actions, in our vernacular, that point to Jesus. It's not about the sign. A lot of times we make a big deal about the miracles. Folks, the miracles aren't the big deal. It's, it's about who the miracles are pointing to. Now, sometimes, like in our passage today, the signs are supernatural. They still happen today. They still happen today. But the vast majority of the time, these deeds, these signs, are very mundane, very very natural. They're, they're just a natural, gracious, and loving action that's a result of what Jesus has done in us, the transformational loving grace of Jesus. And... It works itself out this way, really in three ways, basic ways with the church. God calls all of us to be involved in very specific tasks. This is on the screen. It's, it's, it's spiritual gifts. 
okay? Spiritual gifts. Do you have a spiritual gift? Yes, if you're a, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a spiritual gift. Now, you may have been operating for years without an awareness of what that gift is. And you know what probably is going on? You're using that gift for your own benefit. Everything from mercy and giving to administration and leadership. All of us have received at least one spiritual gift. And the point of that gift is to use it to point people to Jesus. Not for our own gratification or enrichment. They're there to point to Jesus. God also calls all of us to get together with, uh, with like-minded believers in a very specific place. We call this the local church. This is a deed. This is something people are watching. They're, they're, they're actually seeing if you're as committed as you say you are. And the deeds that happen in here where teaching and training and equipping and worship take place, they're very important as a, as a part of the deeds, the signs associated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God also calls us to prepare to do life with a very specific group of people. We call them your oikos. That you're using those gifts and those talents to love on, to impact the people that God has placed in your relational world. And it is through these actions, through these signs, through these deeds, that we direct people's attention towards Jesus. Not towards us. Not, not even towards First Baptist Church of Denver City. We point to Jesus. That's why you're here. That's the mission. Not a single one of us has saved anybody. But we can sure be a sign that points them to Jesus. Here's a great example of that. In the next chapter, Acts chapter 9, there's a story of a disciple who has a very unfortunate name. Her name was Dorcas. Any of you name your kid Dorcas? Now, uh, she had another name, Tabitha. I'd be Tabitha long before I'd be Dorcas. But Tabitha, she made cloaks for widows. Boy, that's, that's huge, isn't it? She made cloaks for widows. In verse 36, it says this, She was always doing kind things for others and helping the poor. It says that she was so kind to others that when she died, the entire community gathered at her bedside and wept. And what did she do? She made cloaks. Just a simple demonstration of the transformation Jesus and the Holy Spirit had brought to her life. And it impacted her oikos. It impacted the people around her. Peter calls it adorning the gospel. Isn't that a great phrase? Adorning the gospel. It's like a Christmas tree. We adorn it with decorations, right? Well, when you do good things in the name of Jesus for other people, you're decorating your tree. And folks, listen to me. What was the result of Philip's work in the Samaritan city of Samaria. Verse 8. There was great joy in that city. Great joy. So here's a question. I need you to answer this one. We're almost done. Is there great joy in Denver City, Texas because of this church? Because of the things you're doing 
day by day, week by week, trying to impact people with the gospel of Jesus. You know, at First Baptist Plains, one of our core values is joy. Right? Being a follower of Jesus ought to be fun. Right? We want to help believers to exude the kind of joy that leads others to the source of the joy, that being Jesus. I have found out that, that joy is contagious. And, and using the example of Tabitha here, if, if, if First Baptist Church of Denver City just disappeared one day, just gone, would anyone miss us? You know, I think so. I really do. I know the deeds of this church. The vacation Bible schools, the children's ministries, the youth ministries over the years, the worship services, all of those things, all of the little things you do as people celebrate the birth of a child and even celebrate the going home of, a, of an old saint. All of these things are tremendous sources of joy. But I think you'll agree with me that we can always do better, right? We can always do better. So, First Denver City, we must be a people committed to bringing joy to our community. And the way we do that is through words. We do that by talking about Jesus. Again, not forcibly, not banging somebody over the head with a Bible, but just in the natural flow of conversation, Jesus is this to me. You know, a witness is not proving Jesus exists or talking somebody in to a relationship with Jesus. A witness is simply saying, this is what I've seen. This is what I've experienced. You do it all the time with restaurants and movies. Well, why won't we do it with Jesus? The way we bring joy is through word, and we also bring it through deed. Just loving people. Making cloaks. Folks, this is my challenge to you. Let's be the kind of people that bring joy to this community. Amen? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I want to be courageous like Philip. I want to be somebody who can walk into a place that hates me for whatever reason. And they see the love of Jesus, hear the love of Jesus through me. So, Father, the reality is here in Denver City, Texas, I'm probably not going to run into too many people that hate me. They're just friends and neighbors. Father, help us to love them enough to say something. Help us love them enough to take a meal, to babysit some kids, to make a cloak. Father, help us to understand that this Christian thing, it's really not that complicated. Give us confidence that even in the midst of those conversations where we feel completely inept, remind us time and time again, we have the Spirit. And it's time for some of us to jump.
Father, I don't know I don't know what's going on in the minds and hearts of the people in this room, but you do. Father, if there's conviction happening here in some area that we talked about this morning, give these folks the courage to follow through on that, to, to make some changes. To step out in courage. Brothers, they may not even know you as Savior, that some of the things we're talking about this morning are so foreign. No idea what it means. Spiritual gifts and filled with the Spirit. What in the world? Jesus, give them the courage to deal with that this morning. We all desperately need you and your Son. So move in this room. As we continue in prayer, I know I'm not your pastor, but I kind of feel like sometimes I am. I sure do love you guys. And so if you want to talk to me about any of this, that's what I'm here for. There is nothing magical about talking to Patrick. Y'all know that already. I'm just here to help. And so if you need some help, some prayer, some encouragement, I'll be here. But you know what? You don't need me to talk to Jesus. You don't need me to respond in obedience to Jesus. You can do it right where you are this morning. So as Stephen plays, respond to the Spirit in whatever way that he's calling you to respond. You respond this morning.